Please take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21 as we continue to work through this gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're continuing to explore this passage where Jesus speaks to us about the last days. And as you've understood, even from the beginning of our worship service this morning, we are looking forward to that day, right? Or are you? Read with me Luke chapter 21, beginning at verse 20. Jesus continues, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the city, in the country, excuse me, enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be a great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Let's pray and ask God to guide us in our understanding of His Word. Father, we delight in being Your children, Lord. We know it is only, Lord, by grace, that we are able to be in your presence, that we are able to draw near, that we will have any, Lord, interest or appetite for your truth. And so our prayer now, Lord, is that you would guide us. Lord, lead us for your name's sake. Sanctify us. Make us more and more like Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. If anything, this Sunday morning sermon is really the second half of last Sunday's message. Remember, if you back up a little bit in this chapter, this conversation began with the people admiring the temple. They were struck by the, the grandeur of it. They were struck by the gold and the white marble, and they were marveling at it. And Jesus responded to their marveling at the temple by telling them that the time was going to come when the temple would be so thoroughly destroyed that not one stone would be left upon another. Those who heard him that day mistakenly thought that he was making reference to the final judgment. So they asked him to tell them about the end times. Jesus started out in verses 8 through 19 by explaining that a lot of things were going to happen before the final judgment ever got here. He told us that there would be false Christs, there would be wars and the rise and fall of kingdoms and nations, there would be natural disasters, and there would be the persecution of the church. But we as his children do not need to fear because he will give us the words to speak when we are called to testify before the rulers of this world. 
Jesus taught us these things to prepare them at the time, but to prepare us for the fact that this world will never be our home. Brothers and sisters, if we are living for Christ, the world will always be against us. Now, as we pick up with verse 20 this morning, Jesus is coming back to the subject of the destruction of the temple. And what we're going to see in our passage is that Jesus basically gives us the bookends to how things are going to unfold. He begins by talking about the fall of Jerusalem as one incredible sign of God's judgment upon the nation of Israel. And then he bridges to the end times when he will return again to judge all the earth. The core message, the core message that we are to understand from this is that we live in light of the impending judgment of the universe. Unbelievers need to flee from the wrath to come. And believers can live for his glory with the assurance that Christ will accomplish our redemption. That's the heart of this passage. And so we're going to look at this passage in just two points, two parts this morning. We're going to look first at the judgment of Jerusalem. The judgment of Jerusalem. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. As we previously discussed, a revolt among the Jews in the mid-60s A.D. brought about a very swift response from Rome. Rome sent General Titus, who would later be the emperor of Rome, to begin systematically reconquering Israel. After subjugating the northern regions, he arrived outside of Jerusalem in April of 70 AD and laid siege to the city. After a siege lasting almost four months and thousands having died of starvation, he finally burst through the gates of the city on August 10th with brutal force. The Jewish zealots fell back to the temple for their last stand, and so the final battle there at the Temple Mount resulted in the temple being burned and ransacked. 1.1 million people were slaughtered in the streets of Jerusalem during that siege and subsequent invasion, and another 97,000 people were led away into slavery. Luke quotes Jesus here as using the word desolation. And that's a reference to the abomination of desolation foretold by the prophet Daniel. Daniel describes a, a despot king who would break covenant with Israel and subsequently desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. It would be a profane, idolatrous occupation of God's temple that caused the temple to henceforth be desolate and unusable. And that's exactly what happened when Titus invaded with Titus and the Roman army, especially going on to the Temple Mound, you had a Roman army with its standards and flags, which bore the images of pagan gods, in the temple complex. Particularly, you have pagan soldiers who are soaked from the slaughter in human blood, carrying their images through the holy place. Secondly, you have Titus, the future emperor of Rome, who would later himself be worshipped as a deity, standing in the holy place. And thirdly, this abomination of paganism invading the temple culminated in the utter ruin and decimation of the temple as they did not leave one stone upon another. Now, why was not one stone left upon another? Remember, because the stones were covered in gold and what the soldiers did, the Roman soldiers did, was they literally dismantled every single stone to get every bit of gold they could. Now, Jesus was referring to this, this destruction of Jerusalem some 40 years later. 
He knew that some listening to him would be there, but he also knew that his words would be recorded and spread. And so he wanted to warn the people. First, in verse 21, he said, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. Now we remember that in the ancient world, cities were encircled by high fortified walls. If a foreign army was coming, the wisdom of the day told people to flee into the cities to find refuge. That was the conventional wisdom. But we see here Jesus instructing the people to do the opposite. They're not to flee to the cities to find refuge behind the walls. They're to flee from the city. He says if you're in Judea or in the countryside villages surrounding Jerusalem, don't go to the city. Flee to the mountains. And if you're in the city, get out. Jesus knew what Titus was going to reap. You continue, Jesus speaks mournfully for the pregnant and nursing mothers in verses 23 and 24. He says, alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be a great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. He's warning them here that, again, pregnant and nursing mothers, they were the ones who, who wouldn't be able to run as quickly. They wouldn't be able to travel as fast. And therefore, they would be more subject, along with the other infirmed, they would be more subject to being slaughtered or captured and put into slavery because they couldn't escape quickly. This also speaks to how the judgment of God was coming upon all generations present in Jerusalem. And we want to pause at this point and ask ourselves, why did such a vicious destruction come upon Jerusalem? Jesus tells us in verse 22, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Notice in verse 23 that Jesus also says, this is God's wrath against this people. This is a, a brutal reminder, brothers and sisters, that vengeance is the Lord's. When we speak of God's vengeance, what do we mean? Well, vengeance is God's divine prerogative to judge people for their sins and his determination to punish them for it. And his wrath, his wrath is the holy action of his hatred for sin. His wrath is God using his infinite power to bring his retribution upon unrepentant sinners. That is exactly what God was going to rain down upon his own people. And he was going to use Rome to do it. And his vengeance against Israel is a fulfillment of what was written all the way back in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 29, verses 15 and 16, God says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. This was part of the ministry of Christ even as he was here on earth. During the time of his earthly ministry, Jesus had preached against many of his own people's prevailing sins. He had called out their religious hypocrisy. He had called out their apathy to the things of God. He had called them out for both their legalism and their convenient neglect of the law. And sadly, the majority of people during the time of his earthly ministry, the majority of the people remained stiff-necked and hard-hearted. This all culminated, of course, in the people's most grievous sin, 
of rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ and nailing Him to the cross. You know, for that alone, God would have been just to decimate Jerusalem right after the church was scattered due to the persecution we see early in the book of Acts. And yet even then, God was gracious. God was gracious to give them another 40 years to repent before Jerusalem was sacked. And so back to my original question, why did such a vicious destruction come upon Jerusalem? Because they rejected and murdered the Messiah, the Savior, the Holy Son of God. But there's also a second reason. There's a second reason. The whole system of temple sacrifice in Jerusalem had to be decimated because once the redemptive work of Christ was completed, any further sacrificial offerings of the blood of animals was a blasphemy. You see, Jesus... When he came and died on the cross for our sins, he offered the once and for all sacrifice for the sins of his people. Once he died and rose again, the old temple in Jerusalem was no longer God's dwelling place among men. It was no longer the place for God's people to commune with him. Christ himself was not only the full and final sacrifice for sin, Christ himself is our temple. Remember it says in John 1.14 that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's the actual meaning of the Greek term used there in, in John 1.14. Jesus himself tabernacled among us. Jesus, Jesus in John chapter 2, verse 19, even referred to his body as the temple when he said, tear down this temple and in three days I will build it yet again. And so Jerusalem was destroyed in such a severe manner because of the people's sin of rejecting Christ. And the temple was destroyed in such a severe manner because it had become an idol in the souls of the Jewish people. They had chosen to continue under the old covenant with the old sacrifices. They had chosen that system over God's Messiah. And therefore, God was going to wipe the temple from the face of the earth, which he did. God had appointed Jerusalem's destruction, and it would be for an appointed amount of time. Look down at the second part of verse 24. Jesus says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are, are fulfilled. You know, what's interesting is our Lord said this almost 2,000 years ago. And it's still true today. Jerusalem, even today, remains just as our Lord said here. Even with the resettlement of the Jewish people and the reestablished nation of Israel following World War II, there are still large numbers of Gentiles in the country and in the city of Jerusalem. The Temple Mount today remains under the control of Muslims who have built the Dome of the Rock Mosque right where the holy place of the Jewish temple once sat. And so this text links with what Paul tells us in Romans eleven twenty five through 26 when he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Again, based on Paul's words and even what Jesus is saying here, God has a plan to bring Israel to Christ when the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. We don't know when that will be. But until then, Israel remains under a curse for rejecting Christ. 
the Israelite people. They, they are a very religious people, even today, those who are practicing Jews. But whether it was those Jews of the day of Christ or those Jews that practice today, we want to understand, brothers and sisters, that religion does not save you. Only Christ can save you. Here Jesus was standing in the midst of a place that he is informing people. He is telling them, listen, everything you see, everything that you marvel at is going to be gone because of the vengeance of the Lord. Even in that moment, he had a heart to save his people. That's why he warns them, when you see the threat coming, do not run to the fortifications of man for shelter. Flee from the fortifications of man. Brothers and sisters, that was not only true historically, materially. It's true still today. When you hear of the coming of the righteous Son of God, do not flee to what man has to offer. Nothing of the world of men can save you from the judgment of God. Flee from the wrath of to come by, by trusting in Christ. Christ alone is our refuge and strength. To trust in anything or anyone above or, of, or instead of the Lord Jesus Christ is literally to commit blasphemy. It's an act of cosmic treason against the God who created you. And, and please understand this to the very, the very depths of your heart. Think about this. God would not even allow the religious system that he established under the old covenant to remain an idol for Israel. He wouldn't allow it. He utterly destroyed it. So do you think that he will tolerate your idols? Do you think Jesus will tolerate the substitutes that you've taken up in your life for him? What do you think is his heart towards those things that receive your focus, that receive your time, that receive your attention, that receive all the priority of your life? What do you think that he will do with those things that you love and value more than him? He will destroy them, brother. He will destroy them, sister. And, and, and I don't just mean sin. Sin is certainly included in that. We certainly make sinful idols in our life. We give ourselves over to lust. We give ourselves over to, to an apathy. We give ourselves over to a materialism. We give ourselves over to an anger. We give ourselves over all the time to a selfishness. But you know what? There are even some good things, some things that are gifts of God that we can make an idol of in our lives. Brothers and sisters, nothing, no one can fill your heart as Christ can and as he does. And if you find yourself struggling spiritually in this life, it is the gentle, comforting voice of your Savior that calls you, that beckons you to weigh your heart in light of Scripture to see if there is anything you have cherished more than Him, to see if there is anything that you have erected as a substitute in your life for Him, to see if there is anything or anyone else you're depending upon instead of Him. It is that kind, gentle, loving voice, merciful voice of your Savior that beckons you to to lay aside your idols and trust in him alone. 
You see, brothers and sisters, Christ is our sacrifice. Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Christ is our high priest now who intercedes for us, and Christ is our temple. We go to him and through him to commune with the Lord. He is our salvation. He is our peace, and he is the perfect provision for our deepest spiritual needs. Judgment is coming. Make no mistake. If you die before the return of Christ, the Bible tells us is it appointed unto man once to die and then to face the judgment. Or if you are alive at the return of Christ, we will face his judgment. So I echo the question that Pastor Rick asked earlier. Are you ready for that day? Do you look forward to that day? Are you trusting in him and in him alone to be your salvation? I want you to know even today, if you are without Christ, I speak to our young people. I speak to others who may have joined us. If you are without Christ, I want you to know this very day, Christ again holds out the truth. He holds out the good news. He holds out his blessed gospel. You can be forgiven of your sins. You can be justified and beloved in God's sight. You can be adopted as one of his own children if you will but turn and trust in Jesus Christ alone. He is the one and only Savior. That takes me then to my second point, the second point of this text, which is the judgment of the whole world. First was the judgment of Jerusalem, now the judgment of the whole world. And as we move from verse 24 to verse 25, we are moving toward that global, uh, that, that global event that all of Scripture really looks toward. And if you think about it, all the things that Jesus described for us last week in my sermon last week from verses 8 to 18, they are the things that are happening between the time of his ascension and his second coming. Now, as we get into the subject of eschatology, or eschatology is just a big word that means your theology of the end times, as we get into this subject, we want to understand that, that regardless of whether you're, you're amillennial in your approach or whether you're premillennial in your approach, all of us believe that the second coming of Christ will be preceded by a time of intense persecution, natural upheaval, and geopolitical crisis. As a historic premillennialist, I believe that the very end of the Great Tribulation detailed in the book of Revelation is what is being described here. Jesus says in verse 25, And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. The parallel passage in Matthew 24, 29 speaks similarly. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. These verses teach us that amazing cosmic phenomena will mark the end of the great tribulation with signs among the sun and moon and the stars. And there will likewise be great distress among the nations because of extraordinary tumult of the oceans. And we see the same type of language in the Old Testament text that refer to the day of the Lord. Again, this has been a consistent theme all through Scripture. Isaiah 13, verses 9 through 11. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. 
Joel chapter 2, verses 30 and 31, God says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. We also see similar language used in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 12 and following. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. If we go back to our text... Verse 26 says that these signs in the heaven and on earth will be terrifying to people everywhere. People will be fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming upon the world. And if we go back to Revelation 6 again, it tells us in verse 15 through 17 that these events are so catastrophic that the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, the rich and the powerful, and everyone, even the slave and the free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Brothers and sisters, if we really think about what is being spoken of here, And what is being described, it is more terrible than any other natural disaster that we have heard of or or thought of during the time of our own existence. I mean, we see in our own day and time, you know, the, the power of fire falling upon the earth and we see the incredible destruction that some have suffered in Maui. We see the, the incredible destruction that can be wrought when a, when a Category 4 or 5 hurricane sweeps up the coast and, and there's flooding and destruction and homes that are just decimated. We see tornadoes. We see what lightning strikes can do. We see what tsunamis can do. But the language that Scripture uses to describe that day of the Lord is far beyond any of those things. Far beyond. And look, the second half of verse 26, this is, this is not just on the earth. second half of verse 26 says, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Because it refers here, because Jesus refers here to the powers of the heavens, most commentators believe this refers to God shaking the spiritual heavens so that anything that is not part of his eternal creation is sifted out for judgment. In other words, I believe this refers to the spiritual forces of darkness even being shaken out of the spiritual realm to answer in judgment. And Hebrews tells us about this, right? Hebrews 12, 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This last phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So we see God bringing here an incredible, chaotic tumult upon the earth and upon the spiritual realm that is a sifting in preparation for the arrival of Christ. All of that is merely the prelude to the main event. And the main event is in verse 27. Verse 27, Jesus says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Son of Man is that title For Jesus, given all the way back in the book of Daniel, he is the perfect God-man. 
And he will come in a cloud with great power and glory. Remember that God's presence is is often represented by a cloud in Scripture. In the Exodus, God was with his people in a pillar of cloud by day when God's presence descended on Mount Sinai. And later upon the tabernacle, it was described as the presence of a bright cloud. On the Mount of Transfiguration, a bright cloud appeared over the disciples and God spoke to them saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. Listen to him. And so we see a cloud always being associated in these terms with the presence of the Lord. But unlike those events, everyone on earth is going to see the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, coming in the clouds with great power and glory, like the warrior king that he is. And this fits exactly with what the angel told the disciples in the first book of Acts, in, excuse me, the first chapter of Acts. When Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heaven, he went, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus will come again in that cloud of glory. And hear me, Jesus is not going to return to some hidden place or in some secret way. When Jesus comes again, his arrival will be absolutely unmistakable to every person on the planet. Matthew 24, 27 says, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Christ will return in power and glory, manifesting a splendor of light that will terrify the wicked of the earth. Will terrify them. Again, go back to what I read in Revelation 6. You have people hiding in caves, crying out for the rocks to fall on them so that they will be hidden from the gaze of this one who is returning in glory. But you know what, brothers and sisters? While the return of Christ will be a source of terror for unbelievers, it won't be a source of terror for we who believe in him. What does our Lord say to us in verse 28? Look at verse 28. He says, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. I want to use an illustration here. I want you to think back with me to World War II. And we know that one of the brutal, brutal truths of World War II is how Jews were imprisoned. They were put in camps by the Nazis. Numerous ones of them executed by firing squad and gas chambers and furnaces. And as World War II was nearing its end and as allied forces were marching across Europe, I want you to imagine those Jewish prisoners in those death camps. Those Jewish prisoners, they would begin to hear the distant gunfire. Then they would hear the explosion of bombs. And then they would see allied aircraft buzzing overhead and returning to drop bombs at the front. And as all that began to happen, their Nazi guards, filled with terror at the approaching allied army, they began to drop their rifles and flee from the coming destruction. But to the prisoners, to the prisoners, the sound of war was the symphony of their liberation. 
They could straighten up their backs that were weary with toil. They could raise their heavy heads and look to the horizon for the faces of those who had set them free. They could laugh and embrace and hope again because their redemption was drawing near. Brothers and sisters, that's what it will be like for those of us who are alive at the Lord's return. The darkening of the sun and the moon, the stars falling from heaven, the seas roaring, the heavens being shaken, all the kingdoms of the earth in distress and fear, those are terrors of an impending judgment for those who are without Christ. But for us, it is the symphony of our approaching redemption. Listen to me. The bride never fears the sound of her loving husband's approaching footsteps. The sound of him coming to her side fills her with joy, not fear. So it will be for the people of God. Listen to how scripture describes it. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed Matthew 24, 31, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. 1 Thessalonians 4, that we've already read this morning, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Isn't that the greatest part of the promise of His coming? We shall always be with the Lord. You know, m- many of you know, you remember, Lisa and I met when we were 16. We didn't marry until we were 24. I chased her hard for eight years, right? And there were seasons during that eight years when we lived apart from one another. But most of the time, I could, I could drive to see her often. I mean, all through the end of high school, through college, she lived 11 minutes away. Her mom always welcomed me over the house, welcomed me to dinners with them. I was over there all the time. And you know what? When I, when I knew that I loved her, when I knew that I was being led for her to be my wife, the thing I hated most was having to leave and go back to my own house alone. I remember when that time of the evening came and I'd have that 11-minute drive back home. I hated it. And I remember on our wedding day distinctly thinking as we were leaving our wedding reception and headed to our honeymoon, I was thinking to myself, I don't have to leave her anymore. We will always be together. That's what it's like, brothers and sisters. When the bridegroom comes, we will always be with him. We will never be separate from him again. We will know him and we will know the glory of his presence and the comfort of his embrace. We will know his peace and and his mercies, and his character, and his person more intimately than we could have ever imagined. We will always be with the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, when when we hear of God's wrath coming, when 
when we perhaps, maybe some of us in our own lifetimes, when we see the wrath of God being poured out here, we don't ever need to be afraid. It is the symphony of our redemption as our Savior draws nigh. And if we are people who are living for Him, then we long for His return. And and that's another heart check for us, right? I think in many ways, you know, we, we as God's people don't really long for Jesus' return. You know, we have this mentality, well, you know what, I've, I've worked hard for all these years and I've stored up, you know, this pension or this retirement account and, you know, I'd, I'd kind of like time to enjoy that and, and there's plans that we have and trips that we were going to take and I want to, you know, I want to see my children raised and, uh, and see them walk down the aisle and I want to have the joy of grandchildren and, you know, there's just so many things, Lord. And listen to me. Having a, a good job to work at and, and faithfully being a good steward and, and having the blessing of children and perhaps even grandchildren, those are gifts of the Lord. But don't allow the gifts of the Lord, don't allow the gifts of the Lord to become such an idol that you desire them more than you desire the presence of Christ. If, if, we, if we in our hearts in any way would want to delay the coming of our Lord, that reflects a heart problem, a priority problem that we need to take to Christ and confess and ask Him to give us, give us a heart that's reflective of His. Give us that heart that longs to see Him. Because you see, the more we're like Christ the more weary we will be of the things of this world, even the good things. The more we are like Christ, the more we will feel just that burden of sin that we long to be free of. The more we are like Christ, the more we will long to be free from this world of sin and cancer and death and loss and and trouble. Jesus is the one who bore the wrath of God in our place. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We do not need to fear judgment. Brothers and sisters, we need to be a people who pray for it. Who pray with John as he wrote the book of Revelation. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good, so faithful. And your love, Lord, endures forever. Even as we have come again to your holy word, even as you have brought us again, Lord, to consider your judgment, the fierceness of your wrath against sin, and yet the tenderness of your mercy and grace to those who are awaiting your return. As we hear these truths, Lord, we are struck again at the magnificence of your holiness and the tenderness of your love. Make us a people, Lord, who look forward to the day of your coming, the day of your return. Make us a people who live each day in light of this, a people who are indeed ready because we are setting apart Christ as Lord over all, because we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds, because we are loving you, Lord, with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Lord Jesus, make us ready. In your name we pray. Amen.